This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is the disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. We also offer Category 1 CME credit through MyCares at Michigan State University. The link for CME are in the show notes. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about problematic smartphone use. How are you doing, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing this evening? Uh, Just enjoying uh, another riveting conversation with you over addiction medicine. I'm excited to get into smartphone use, or at least I think my wife is very excited for us to review this article. Oh my gosh, I'm excited too. Uh, Before we get started, just a quick podcast update. I heard that all the cool kids were on Instagram. This is what the residents told me. So the podcast now has an Instagram and Threads account that you can follow if that's your thing. So look us up there if you want to follow us on our new Instagram account. So John, in terms of addiction medicine this week, I was scanning through something fun. It's the 2022 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. It came out a few weeks ago. And I think by the time this episode is released, it will actually be 2024. But you know, these things take a while to process. Uh, The whole report is hundreds of pages long. And the summary PowerPoint has 68 slides in it. But they did put out some easy to read infographics with the key points, which I'll link to in the show notes. But I just really wanted to share some highlights. So this study is done every year, and it tries to take a snapshot of mental health and drug use in the United States. So some highlights that I thought were interesting were that in 2022, 60% of people aged 12 and over use nicotine, alcohol, or drugs. So more than half of Americans are using addictive substances. 48.7 million people aged 12 or older, which is 17.3% of the population, had a substance use disorder in the past year. This high prevalence of substance use and substance use disorder is just so important to remember as we try to break down stigma of addiction. Most Americans use some kind of addictive drug and about one in six actually meet criteria for a substance use disorder. So it's very, very common. Don't think that it's not something you will encounter. And then here was a fact for you I thought you'd like. 7.3% of adolescents use nicotine or tobacco products and of those 73% vaped exclusively. So tons of adolescent vaping and vaping, exclusive vaping has become very popular for adolescents. Another fact, almost 9 million Americans misused opioids in 2022, which was 3.2% of the population. And of these, almost 700,000 people admitted to using illicit fentanyl, although many more likely did use fentanyl either unknowingly or knowingly, but didn't admit to it. So tons of fentanyl use. And the final fact to share that I liked from this report was about substance use disorder treatment, which is what we do. So some data. Of the people who had a substance use disorder, only 24% received any kind of treatment for their disorder. Of the 76% of adults with substance use disorder who did not get treatment, so you might say, oh, it's terrible, nobody's getting treatment. Of those people, 95% did not seek out treatment or they didn't think they needed treatment. So I guess it's good news. Only a small fraction of the people who wanted care couldn't get care. But I don't know what it says about the care we provide when if more than 75% of people with a substance use disorder aren't interested in treatment or think that they don't need treatment. Just starting there, John, what do you think of those facts? And specifically, why do you think that only 24% of people with substance use disorder want treatment? 
I think a lot of people are just in denial, right? I think that when you look at that criteria for substance use disorder, you know, I like the fact that it's consolidated, kind of insert substance, but the criteria now in the DSM is all the same. I think that, um, you know, people that have issues with heroin or cocaine, I think that like that's not socially acceptable, but a lot of our substance use disorders are, are alcohol, tobacco, and I think a lot of us have seen someone have too much at Christmas and pass out on the couch or someone's uncle that's always has one too many beers. And, you know, that's just such and such. That's who they are. And I think that, you know, maybe because those are considered socially acceptable vices, they kind of go undiagnosed or people just living in with their head in the sand. They don't want to acknowledge they have a problem yet. Right. Or they think that treatment would be a bigger problem than the drugs. Yeah. For whatever reason, in terms of cost, time, headaches. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what were you thinking about in addiction medicine this week? This is really kind of like a peripheral topic, but uh, in the New York Times, they were talking about, uh, there's an article about Rite Aid facing slumping sales and opioid suits files for bankruptcy. And it was from last month. And as you know, Rite Aid has filed for bankruptcy or, or their version of bankruptcy. So I think that sounds very um, inflammatory when you hear someone files for bankruptcy, like they're going to be going away. This is really kind of chapter 11. So it's really kind of more reorganization than anything else. And I think when you go through the article, they talk about they're currently in $3.3 billion of debt at the moment. And they're, they have a lot of money being influxed in. And a lot of the article, at least kind of on the surface, they talk about kind of these opioid suits. And I think that one thing that they have, unlike some of the other pharmaceutical uh, distributors, is that the um, U.S. Justice Department, they had a lawsuit against them. It was basically a whistleblower lawsuit under false claims, where apparently there were several hundred thousand opioid and controlled substance prescriptions that were filled that were kind of like outside of standard of care for fill. So basically, they were filling more illicit or erroneous prescriptions. Interestingly, though, the amount of money, a lot of those cases are still in court, and, and it's really about $30 million is what they're saying is what they owe so far for these settlements out of their $3.4 billion deficit. So it's really not the suits that are killing them. It actually sounds like it's a series of bad business ploys. So they, they tried to merge with Walgreens, and that was unsuccessful. They tried to merge with another group, and that was unsuccessful, mostly due to FTC kind of shutting down those as kind of being monopolizing distribution. So you know, even though the opioid settlement money and these suits might be contributing, it sounds like that it's actually much bigger than that. And, and really, Rite Aid is going nowhere. I just think pharmacy chain and pharmacies in general seems like a hard business. I'm sure you do, too. I have a certain amount of struggles with our pharmacies. You know, I don't really struggle with the pharmacy, but it can be difficult for my patients to get their medications. And I sometimes get a little frustrated with that. But oh, my gosh, the job that pharmacies do is so hard and takes so much precision and is very high stakes, I can imagine that it costs a lot of money to do it right. So Yeah, it seems like it's a lot. Thanks, pharmacists. That's all I can say. So are you ready to talk about this article? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So this article is very different from what we usually talk about. The article is Emotional Dysregulation Factors Associated with Problematic Smartphone Use Severity, The Mediating Role of Fear of Missing Out. So a little bit of background. I'm the parent of two teenagers, and when it comes up that I do addiction medicine, people invariably ask me not about opiates or meth, but about smartphone addiction. And a lot of my friends also have teenage kids, 
And they are very concerned about this. You know, they'll say, what about smartphone addiction? Do you ever work with patients on that? John, you have kids too. Do you worry about smartphone addiction or um, about them being addicted in some sense to their phones? You know, my kids are eight, five, and three, so they don't have smartphones yet. But I can tell you the tablet is like they're zombies when they have the tablets. I feel like that they're kind of a draw to this kind of immediate gratification and kind of the lights, the flickering sounds. And, you know, oftentimes if I start to talk with them or sit down next to them, they don't even notice that. Yeah, I I definitely saw that when my kids were younger. I actually don't worry so much about my kids. My kids are really busy and they don't spend a lot of time using their phones. Um, I worry more about myself. You know, my phone is never far from me. I actually do feel a little antsy if I don't know where it is uh, or if I've lost track of it. And I have it with me at all times at work because I use it for dictating my notes. Um, I have to use it to sign my prescriptions. I use it when I listen to podcasts in the car on my long commute. I text my friends. I talk on the phone. I look at the newspaper on it. I'm kind of using it all day, every day with only sort of short breaks. And that does make me worry a little bit about it. So globally, the rates of problematic smartphone use and also problematic internet use have been increasing, especially with the COVID pandemic. Internet gaming disorder made it into the DSM-5 as a diagnosis that needs further study. So, you know, internet gaming disorder is someone who has a problem with internet gaming. They have tolerance, meaning they, they need more and more stimulating games and more and more time with their games. They have withdrawal if they don't have them and they have the negative effects of too much gaming and how it affects their lives. So internet gaming disorder is one of those investigational diagnoses in the DSM-5. Problematic smartphone use or smartphone addiction is not a formal diagnosis. And the authors of this paper didn't want to call it smartphone addiction. They call it problematic smartphone use. And so the first thing we want to do is define what that problem is. So what problems do smartphones actually cause? You know, there's no official definition of problematic smartphone use. I guess you could kind of extrapolate from the diagnostic criteria for internet gaming disorder. You know, the potential negative consequences of smartphones have been assessed in different studies. And I read a pretty good meta-analysis that detailed what the various issues might be. It seems like different authors have linked smartphones to pretty much every potential negative consequence you could think of. Problems with self-control, problems with emotional health, problems with physical health, problems with job and school performance, social problems. All these different studies have looked at these different problems connected with smartphone use. So the definition is not, it's kind of broad at this point. After you've decided you have a problem with smartphones, too much smartphoning is a problem, you might ask, why? Why is the smartphone causing this problem? What's, what's the link from smartphone to problem? And if you could find out what that link is, maybe you could get a handle on how to prevent it. And so emotional dysregulation is the pathway that these authors looked at between smartphones and problems. So emotional dysregulation is maladaptive reaction to your own emotions, and it has been linked to problematic smartphone use. And the authors think that it might be the link, and it might be mediated by the fear of missing out, which in this presentation I will call FOMO, as the kids say. <laughs> the FOMO... <laughs> what, do your kids not say FOMO? Not yet. <laughs> they will. <laughs> um, so the authors think that the FOMO might mediate the connection between emotional dysregulation and problematic smartphone use. You know, it's a 
good hypothesis since the thing that the smartphones have that internet gaming does not have is kind of the social media and the constantly being on your person, the constant checking, the constant worrying about what might be going on in the world of social media on your phone if you're not looking at it. So, John, do you think that just from your personal experience that that is something that might drive problematic smartphone use, like a fear of missing out? I mean, I've never called it that, but I certainly, when you say this, everything you said about the smartphone is something I also feel like is is a trouble with me. I feel like it's always on me. I feel like I respond to it, like my life is in this phone. I have messages, EMRs on the phone. Um, sometimes I'm checking messages, sending, um, you know, emails. And yeah, I do panic when it's not around me. And my kids sometimes put it into, we have a little thing at my house called smartphone jail. It's like a little jail I bought off Amazon for $10 that the phone goes into, which is kind of sad. <laughs> I feel like it's an area of improvement in my life. But yeah, you, you, I think it's, you just feel like there's, when you have downtime that, you know, for a second, instead of just enjoying it, you feel like you should be doing something. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's what it really comes down to. So let's talk about this study. We'll see how they looked at this question. So what is the clinical question? First, who's in this study? It included undergraduate students in a U.S. Midwestern University psychology department research pool. So if anyone in our audience has ever majored in psychology as an undergraduate, you have to kind of volunteer for a certain number of psychology studies as part of being in the major. So these were people in that psychology research pool. It excluded people who either couldn't or didn't complete the study correctly or who didn't own a smartphone. So it wasn't real selective about which college students could be in this study. The demographics, they were 65% female, mean age was 19, they were 79% white, 13% black, and 9% Asian, which probably, although I'm not sure, reflects the underlying demographics of this Midwestern university. The exposure they looked at was emotional dysregulation and fear of missing out. Uh, So the emotional dysregulation was defined as a maladaptive way of reacting to your emotions, including struggles in understanding, accepting, and modulating emotions, regardless of their valence, intensity, or reactivity. So basically, it means that your response to your emotion becomes more dominant and more important than the actual emotion itself. And then FOMO, or fear of missing out, is a persistent concern that one is not present in the gratifying experiences of other people. And it's characterized by a need to stay connected and to know what other people are doing at all times. So that's the sort of exposure. Did you have emotional dysregulation? Did you have FOMO? And then the outcome So they did a bunch of surveys and they looked at your emotional dysregulation, your FOMO, and then your problematic smartphone use. So each of these three measures has like a scale. And when I presented this live to our our live journal club, I was able to put those scales up on a PowerPoint, but on audio, that would be kind of boring to have me read them off. So I'll just give sort of a brief description of these three outcomes that they used. The first scale to measure emotional dysregulation is called the Difficulties in Emotional Dysregulation Scale, short form, or the DERS SF. It measures six domains, and these are important because they come up later. Lack of emotional clarity, a non-acceptance of emotion, difficulties in adopting goal-directed behavior, impulse control, limited access to emotional regulation strategies, and lack of emotional awareness. And I see this in a lot of my opiate use disorder patients. They definitely have emotional dysregulation. Like they have trouble setting goals and meeting them. 
you know, they don't accept their own emotions. They're unable to sort of accept and sit with negative emotions. They have poor impulse control. They can't regulate themselves and they have lack of emotional awareness. So this emotional dysregulation, those domains do kind of ring true for me with a lot of my patients. Um, Next scale is the FOMO scale, which measures frequency of FOMO experiences using 10 different items. I can't believe someone made up this scale, but they did. And there are things like, it bothers me when I miss meeting up with friends, or I get worried when I find out my friends are having fun without me. You know, and if you answer yes to those questions, you get points on the FOMO scale. The final scale is the measure of smartphone addiction, which is kind of the main outcome or the smart problematic smartphone use. It's called the smartphone addiction scale, and they used a short version. And there are 10 items measuring smartphone-related daily life disturbances, smartphone overuse, smartphone tolerance, and smartphone withdrawal. So those are their three scales. And then they had three hypotheses. One, FOMO is positively linked to smartphone problematic smartphone use severity. So more FOMO equals more problematic smartphone use. Next hypothesis, emotional dysregulation is significantly and positively related to FOMO. And finally, hypothesis three, emotional dysregulation leads to FOMO, which then leads to problematic smartphone use. So FOMO is the thing that ties the two together. So what did you think of the clinical question, John? I think it's interesting. Like this is not um, like our typical clinical question or clinical trial, right? This is definitely like something I think as we've talked about before from like more like psychological research, right? A, a link as to kind of like an association. It's kind of interesting to flex this part of the brain and, and kind of hear like how they come up with postulating this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had real trouble understanding it because it's totally outside my area of expertise. It's a psychology paper. And you actually, fortunately, you encouraged me to to run with it and to present it instead of just giving up. And I'm glad I did. I, I thought it was really interesting, if nothing else, just to learn about how they set the study up. So some strengths and weaknesses of this trial. Some strengths, it was pretty big. 343 students participated. They used previously validated scales. The outcomes were clinically relevant. They're of popular interest. People are very interested in smartphone addiction or problematic smartphone use. The associations are consistent from previous studies as well. So there is a previously demonstrated connection between fear of missing out, emotional dysregulation, and problematic smartphone and internet use. It's also been shown the fear of missing out is a significant mediator between psychological distress and some kinds of problematic internet use. So it makes sense it could be the mediator between emotional dysregulation and problematic smartphone use as well. They did quality controls to make sure they disregarded questionnaires that were potentially invalid. And the funding was unlikely to cause bias. It was funded by the University of Malaga. So the researchers, academic funding, but no industry funding. So those are the strengths. There are some weaknesses, though. First off, I really don't feel like problematic smartphone use is well-defined. You know, they had their smartphone addiction scale, but there's no consensus on what the cutoff score might be for smartphone use being a problem. There's no gold standard for what is problematic smartphone use. And since smartphones are ubiquitous and smartphone use is constant, it's hard to know where that problematic line is. You know, various sources say that Americans spend four to five hours a day using their smartphones. But is that too much? I don't know. You know, too much for what? So that's a big problem. The second, it's not blinded, of course. And my guess is that people answering the questions would know exactly what the study was about. 
and that might have biased their answers. Um, the demographics were limited to college students, which does limit generalizability. And it was a cross-sectional study, of course, a point-in-time cross-sectional study. It shows an association, but not a causation. And honestly, most of these students probably had a smartphone prior to the development of their fear of missing out and their sort of adolescent or adult emotional dysregulation. So like the smartphone might have come first. And so when you assume that smartphone use is causing these things or these things cause problematic smartphone use, you know, you don't know which came first from this cross-sectional study. And finally, to me, a lot of the conjectures in the discussion section seem really speculative. But I don't know if that's just because I'm not familiar with the psychology literature and it might seem much more plausible and less, you know, speculative to a psychologist who's more familiar with the area. So I won't say that's necessarily a weakness, but that was something that I didn't fully understand when I was reading it. So, John, do you think this was a valid trial? Yeah, I think it was valid. It seems like it was a, a relatively large size. I think that, you know, these were not kind of made up scales, right? They're previously validated in the psychological literature. I think they linked it off of previous research as well. I think it's interesting, yeah. For a psychological trial, it seems like this is pretty standard, right? I would say right, but I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the results. So um, the researchers took the results from their three surveys that they did, and they used two different statistical techniques, one called confirmatory factor analysis and one called structural equation modeling to explore the associations between the emotional dysregulation the FOMO, and the problematic smartphone use. So just as a reminder for everyone, there are six domains of emotional dysregulation. Lack of emotional clarity, non-acceptance of emotion, difficulties in adopting goal-directed behavior, impulse control, limited access to emotional regulation strategies, and lack of emotional awareness. So just remember those six domains. So going through the three hypotheses, hypothesis one is that FOMO would be positively linked to problematic smartphone use. And they did find that in their data. So yes, FOMO is positively linked or associated with problematic smartphone use. Second is that emotional dysregulation is significantly and positively related to FOMO. And they found that only via one of the six domains. So there was not a connection except in the domain of poor impulse control. The other five domains did not seem to be related to fear of missing out. And the third hypothesis is that there would be a pathway from emotional dysregulation to fear of missing out to more severe problematic smartphone use. Put another way, that FOMO would be a mediator between emotional dysregulation and problematic smartphone use. So they found partial support for this hypothesis via this poor impulse control domain, but not through the others. So the results indicate that greater impulse control dysregulation was associated with heightened problematic smartphone use via increased fear of missing out. So that's the results, kind of a mouthful. Um, but again, poor impulse control seemed to lead to be connected to a fear of missing out and therefore to problematic smartphone use. So that's the result. And how am I going to use this result, John? So I'm not sure I will be able to apply these findings directly to my personal practice since, well, like I said at the beginning, people ask me all the time about smartphone addiction kind of in my daily life. No one actually comes to me specifically in my office for the treatment of problematic smartphone use. It's definitely that's in the realm of the psychologists and therapists. However, I learned a ton as I worked on this podcast and worked my way through this article, and I have a much clearer sense of what might actually be 
problematic smartphone use um, and when to really be worried about it. And since impulse control was the component of the emotional dysregulation most connected to fear of missing out, impulse control training could be a strategy for someone who has both a lot of this fear and having that fear, you know, leading to constant compulsive checking of social media, fear of disconnecting from their smartphone, that could be an area of intervention. You know, working on impulse control could be a way you could intervene to help with that problem. Also, when I think about using it, though, I just want to make a final point. And, you know, I'll give credit to our director of addiction services at St. Max's who uh, made the point that it's not even clear when fear of missing out or, or smartphone use is a problem. You know, on the fear of missing out scale, there are some questions on it like, when I have a good time, it's important for me to share the details online. I mean, is that really a problem? Like, I know a lot of people who love sharing good things online with their friends and family, and it's a real positive part of their experiences is sharing them with other people online. It's not intrinsically a bad thing. You know, when is smartphone use actually a problem? And what is the normal standard against which we are measuring problematic smartphone use or measuring smartphone use against to say what is too much? You know, so I think that's the big limitation in research like this. So what do you think? You know, I I don't know how I'm going to use this clinically like you're deriving, but I do think that actually I do see patients all the time in my addiction and in my general clinic that um, clearly they are preoccupied with their phone, kind of even during time frames when I would think that, you know, they, they come to a health appointment, they have issues of concern, and they're kind of glued to their phone while they're talking to me. I, I now kind of wonder if that's a surrogate marker, at least that I should kind of think in the back of my head about these patients. Like, do they also have impulse control disorders? What other things are going on in their life? I know that's not like causal here, but it is interesting that they all kind of seem to go together, which kind of fits some of these scenarios. I mean, I do think the, like you mentioned with your kids and the iPad, and I noticed with myself and, you know, kind of screen time, it's very compelling. It really calms you down. It grabs your attention in a way and doesn't let go. It makes you forget about other things that are going on. And so the desire to turn to a smartphone or a tablet when you need a little break or when things are getting difficult is understandable. But if you then turn to it and you neglect, I don't know, you neglect what's going on around you or you if if something's difficult and you really need to face it and you don't because you just get lost into your phone, that could be a way that it's it's a problem. And if if it's related to poor impulse control, it becomes hard to resist that. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And well, thank you for listening to it. I I feel I have a little bit more knowledge, at least to share with my friends when they ask me if I think smartphones are addictive. And what's your final answer? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is what I tell my patients and my kids and myself. I mean, I think some of our generations like brightest minds and psychologists, you know, child development experts, really, really smart people, you know, interface design experts have all gone into making these products as compelling as possible, you know, and there's a reason it's hard to resist. People who are much smarter than you and I have designed them purposely to to make them hard to put down. I think just acknowledging that, that that's how they're designed, it goes a long way to helping you put it down when you need to. Well, thanks for presenting that. It was fun. So, John, I wanted to share a comment from one of our listeners. And we had said in a previous episode, we asked our listeners which was their favorite article from episodes 
21 through 30 when we did our roundup. And this listener said, I didn't vote, but the survival article was the best. I told one of my patients how she was a survivor who was in recovery for years, but struggling for other reasons. And she started crying. And then I started crying. And it was a whole thing. And that is a lovely comment. And, you know, I think other listeners had also said that that concept of survivorship was something that had been really meaningful to patients and to themselves. So that's another vote for the survival article as the best one from the most recent 10 articles. So that vote has now been registered. Which is which is your article? Yes, I did present that article. Soliciting votes. <laughs> well, if anyone else liked that article, just let me know. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on social media. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, CME support from MyCares, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman of Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day. Thank you.